Our scripture passage this morning comes from Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. And you might think, wow, the scripture from Revelation for Advent, but we are talking about the characteristics of Christ. And this uh, passage, as uh, Wes will soon tell you, is an uh, example of who Christ is with regards to his purpose. So if you would stand and join with me as I read. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his right, on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Good morning. Uh, Merry Christmas. Yes, it's an exciting week, and we'll begin it with a text from Revelation. <laughs> so, it's good to be with you this morning and open up God's Word with you. This morning, the title of the sermon is The Justice of Jesus. As Jim already said, we've been looking at different attributes of Christ throughout this Advent series, and uh, we've looked at gentleness, and we've looked at compassion in the first week, and this week we'll look at Jesus' justice. And this morning, I want the main point for us to be, as we walk away from, uh, from the message this morning, is this, is that the arrival of the gentle king should prepare us for his coming as the warrior king. The arrival of the gentle king should prepare us for his coming as the warrior king. I don't know if many of you know this, uh, but before the United States enters into a war or to a battle, our leaders consider um, the principles of just war. I don't know if anybody's ever considered these things or heard about these things, but they consider the principles of just war. Is the war righteous and worthy to enter into? And so there's seven criteria by which the leaders of our country kind of consider when, uh, when about to get involved into a war. And one of those criteria is this, is a reasonable chance of success. So before they enter into a war, they consider, it, is there a reasonable chance that we will win this war? It goes like this, a war can only be just if it is fought with a reasonable chance of success. Deaths and injury incurred in a hopeless cause are not morally justifiable. So when they go, when, when the U.S. considers getting involved in a war, is we consider, is there a reasonable chance of success, or is this just a campaign that we already know we're going to lose in, but we just got to get involved anyway? And so they enter in with a, uh, a reasonable amount of doubt still. 
you know, they have a reasonable chance of success, but there's still a level of doubt that exists. Can we truly win this? Is there still, you know, a reasonable amount of success, but there's still a, there's still a little tinge of doubt that we could possibly lose this? Well, I want to say this morning that the war that Jesus the Messiah brings in Revelation 19 against evil, sin, and rebellion in this world doesn't have a reasonable chance of success. It will positively, most certainly, 100% be successful and final. When Jesus comes on that final day to bring justice and righteousness to the world against sin, evil, and rebellion, He will be successful. He will win. And so, why am I preaching this this morning on the Sunday before Christmas? It's probably what you, many of you are asking. Well, it's because Dr. David and Shane made me. I'm just kidding. No, I, I think the reason we need to consider this the Christmas before, or the Sunday before Christmas is this, is that the arrival of the King, Jesus' first coming, should prepare us for His second coming. And that His second coming should strike in us an awe and a love and a healthy fear for Jesus, the gentle King. Is that both of these aspects of Jesus complement one another. They're not... They're not uh, contradictory. Jesus is compassionate. He is gentle. But He is also fierce and firm and just. And so that's why, Shane and I, we, we want to put these things all together. Because they are held together by Jesus and who He is. Is that He is compassionate. He is gentle. But He, he is also firm. And He is also powerful. And that's what we're going to see this morning in Revelation 19, 11-16. Is that Jesus is just. He is firm. He is powerful. And He is a warrior. He is a warrior. And so John's going to bring this up in these verses, 19, 11 through 16. And he's going to do this by highlighting a couple of things in these verses to show us the justice and the power and the zeal of Jesus Christ. And so he's going to look at three things. He's going to, he's going to detail out for us Jesus' appearance. And then he's going to tell us about Jesus' activity. And then he's going to tell us about the names of Jesus in these, in these verses. And all of this is to show that Jesus is completely just, and he will show his justice completely on that final day. Let's look at this. Appearance, activity, and names. The first point is this. The appearance of the warrior king. The appearance of the warrior king. The appearance of the, appearance of the warrior king should strike a healthy fear in us. I don't know, many of you have probably used this phrase when giving directions to somebody. You can't miss it. You can't. Anybody ever said that? You can raise your hand. You can't miss it. You know what's been the hardest thing about having this new building, uh, this new sanctuary? Is that when I would give people directions about how to get to Cross Point, it was always this. Hey, we're on the corner of Airline Highland. You know, we're right next to the McDonald's. And we're two big white bubbles. You can't miss it. <laughs> right? I mean, that's how I explain Cross Point to people. We're two big white Hershey kisses. You can't miss it. You can't miss it. Um, and that's what's been the hardest part about having this sanctuary. Now I can't say the bubbles. It's like, just that building on the corner, right? You know? And so, but we, we always use that phrase, you can't miss it. It's so obvious. They're bubbles, right? It's obvious you're at cross point. Well, the picture that John paints of this warrior king is memorable. When he arrives, it'll be obvious. You can't miss it. You can't miss it. It is that obvious when Jesus will arrive at his second coming. 
just look at this. So look at the details that Jim read for us that are given about his appearance. And appearance in the Bible is a really big deal because we don't get a lot of descriptions of people's appearances in the Bible because it, it's not necessarily that important to the story. So when we do get descriptions of a person's appearance, that means it's very important and we should take note of it because it implies, it's the way the biblical author draws us in and shows us what, what that person's position is, what that person's purpose is, what is their importance, what is their value, what are they coming to do. That's what descriptions of appearance mean in the Bible. And so we need to take note of that because we don't get it everywhere. And so when we see these appearances, these descriptions of Jesus' appearance here in 1911 through 16, it's, it's telling us about Jesus' disposition and demeanor when he comes at his second coming. And he's not coming with hugs and kisses. Right? It first says that his eyes are like a flame of what? A flame of fire. You know, you can tell a lot about a person's eyes, right? Is that we say that, right? Girls particularly. Oh, he's got kind eyes. He's got kind eyes. Right? That's what girls say about guys. Oh, he's just got those kind, sweet eyes. Because eyes somehow tell us about a person's personality or a person's demeanor or uh, what they're like and things like that. Well, consider these eyes of the Messiah, of Jesus. Their eyes, his eyes are a flame of fire. It's not kind eyes. doesn't sound like it to me, right? So much for kind eyes. These are ter- this is a terrifying image. And what are these flames of fire of eyes symbolize for us? What, what, what are they telling us about Jesus? Well, I think a lot, of, a lot of people agree and scholars agree with this is that describing his eyes like a flame of fire is John's way of saying this Savior, this Jesus, when he returns, he will see through everything. His eyes are purifying, and he will see through everything. He will expose everything. Nobody will be able to hide themselves, conceal themselves, camouflage themselves. Jesus has x-ray vision and will see through all of that. That's what flames of fire like eyes, his eyes are, is that he is able to peel back the exterior of a person and see within and see the heart. And we, you know, we, we've gotten that throughout the course of Scripture, right? You know, in David's story, what does it say? Is that man sees on the outward appearance and what? What does God see? He sees on the heart. This is who God is and this is what it's saying about Jesus in his eyes like being flames of fire. They're purifying and they see through things. They, they see through people. Their attempts to be secretive or camouflage or concealing. You won't be able to hide in the presence of Jesus. You think big brother's watching you? You think the government's got you on surveillance? Ain't got nothing on Jesus. He will see straight through you and he sees everything that you do. You probably remember the verses in Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 talking about the word of God being living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Well, you look at verse 13 and see what it says. It says this, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. G.K. Phil says it well. The metaphor of his eyes like flames of fire evokes Christ's role as a divine judge. So Jesus, when he returns in his second coming, he's judge, jury, and what's the last one? Executioner. He sees through everything. He makes right decisions 
on people and he sees all their ways. So not only does John describe his eyes to us and what that means, but also describes what's on his head. What's on his head? What's, what's on his head? Crowns, diadems, right? It explicitly says that. And it's many diadems or crowns. So what more explicitly says that you rule over all things than a crown on your head? You know what more explicitly says? You got many crowns on your head. That's what it says. It's not just one crown, it's many crowns. And that's why we sing that song, crown him with many. Y'all have gotten me two weeks, two weeks back to back singing up here. Singing, crown him with many crowns, with many crowns. This is highlighting Jesus' sovereignty over all things. It's not just one crown, it's many crowns. And this is a dig at the other characters in the Bible, particularly Revelation, who wear crowns. So in, in Revelation 13.1 and Revelation 12, the beast has seven crowns and, uh, and, and the dragon has ten crowns, ten diadems. So they're all, their crowns are numbered, but Jesus' crowns aren't numbered. He has many. And that's to show that Jesus is the true king and the beast and, and the dragon, they are charlatans in comparison to Jesus. They are really not the real true kings and the real rulers of this world. None can rival him. You got seven, you got ten, Jesus has got innumerable crowns. It's a joke to him. I don't know if uh, you, know, you watch NFL football, but it would be similar to Patrick Mahomes, who just won a, his first Super Bowl ring, walking around and gloating. <laughs> Look at this. Yeah, I got a Super Bowl ring. I'm the best ever. Ain't nobody can match me. Nobody can rob me. I'm the best quarterback in the game. You ain't got nothing. And then guess what? Tom Brady walks in. Oh, that's cute, Patrick. One. <laughs> that's really cute. How about six? That's how many Super Bowl rings Tom Brady has. Tom Brady's going to have to grow a third hand to fit all his Super Bowl rings. But that's what it's saying. It's that, Patrick, that's cute. You got one ring? <laughs> I got six. I remember that day when I had one. <laughs> I've already filled up a whole hand. And that's what Jesus is saying by having many crowns on his head is that Beast, dragon, you can't rival me. That's cute that you think you can, but you're charlatan kings. This divine warrior is the true king. And so we, we hear about his eyes, we hear about what's on his head, but what's his attire? What's he, what's he dressed in? Well, he's got a robe dipped in what? He's got a robe dipped in blood. Which, to quote the rapper Shylin, his robe is dipped in blood, but his name is not Joseph's. So if you remember the story of Joseph in Genesis 37, his brothers hate him. Remember, they throw him into a pit and they want to convince the father that he's dead. So what do they do? They take off his, his glorious robe and they dip it in goat's blood and they bring it to the father and say, he's dead, right? So here's the difference in Joseph and Jesus is that his brothers dip Joseph's robe into the blood of goats. But the blood that is on Jesus' robe is not his own. It is the blood of his enemies. That is the difference in Jesus and Joseph. Is that the blood that is all scattered all over Jesus' robe that's dipped in is not his own. It is the blood of his enemies. We have a Savior who is battle-tested. And that those who come against him will pay for it with their own life. They cannot stand against him. This this. Imagery of a blood-soaked robe in battle comes from Isaiah 63. 
If you don't know already, John is basically copy and pasting a lot of Old Testament text together to, to describe this Messiah Jesus. Listen to this from Isaiah 63, when Yahweh is described as in battle. It says this, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? So it's saying, hey, what, what's all over your robe? It's, it's all red. What, what is that? Well, this is Yahweh. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained on my apparel. And now John is taking this image from Isaiah 63 and saying, this is who the Messiah, Jesus, the divine warrior is. When he comes, he will bring an end to the lives of his enemies and it will be shown even on his garments, on his attire, that none can stand against him. And if you missed it, if it wasn't obvious to you already that, that this Jesus is the divine warrior who has come to bring justice to this world, if you miss the eyes, if you miss the many crowns on the head, if you miss the robe dipped in blood, he's going to give us one last thing. Look at this, verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If you missed all the obvious, it sounds like he's going to have a name tag on. Hey, who are you? Oh, yeah, uh, me? Uh it's uh, called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's right here. And it sounds like he's going to have a tattoo on his side too. I don't know about that. That's just a joke. I don't, don't take me, don't take that home. Leave that here. Wes just joking. But there's going to be an obvious, obvious sign on him. That on his robe and on his thigh, it's going to say King of Kings, Lord of Lords, like a name tag. If you missed, if you missed the eyes, you missed the head, you missed the robe, here's the name tag for you, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You shouldn't miss that. That is who he is. And so what do all these details mean for us? All these details and descriptions of Jesus' appearance, what does that mean for us? Well, I think it should do this in us. Like I said earlier, it should strike a healthy fear in us of Jesus Christ. Is that we saw Jesus' gentleness, we saw Jesus' compassion, but he is also just and he is a mighty warrior. And so it, it should strike in us a healthy fear, awe, and respect for Jesus. That he's not a pushover. He's not a doormat. He's not a straw man. He's a divine warrior. And he takes our sin very, very, very seriously. It's not a joke to him. Sin, evil, rebellion will not be tolerated on the final day. Now let me ask you this, Cross Point. How much of your sin do you tolerate? How much of your sin you tolerate because if jesus won't tolerate it on the last day we should not tolerate it on this day if jesus will not tolerate it on the last day we should not tolerate our sin right now today it should be that despicable to us and so not only that it should cause us a healthy fear but after reading these details i was talking with Meyer about these verses last night and she said you know after reading this passage you should kind of be like, I want to be on that guy's team. I want, to be, I want to be on his side. That's exactly what it should evoke in us. Is that you see the descriptions of this Messiah, this Savior, this divine work. You say, man, I, I don't want to be 
I don't want to be on the team that opposes him because I will definitely lose. That's what it should strike him. But not only that, is that when you see these descriptions of Jesus, particularly his eyes slamming the fire, remind yourselves of this, that there will be no hiding, no camouflaging of sin on the final day. Our sin will not be tolerated, but it will also not be hidden from God. As good of a job as we do in hiding and camouflaging our sin from other people, guess what? When you get before the presence of Jesus, it will not be hidden. It will be exposed before him. And there won't be any justifications, the justifications that we use today for sin. Well, everybody's a sinner. Uh, uh, well, well, nobody's perfect. Those are truths, but those aren't justifications for your sin. Let me say that one more time. The phrases, well, everybody's a sinner, or hey, no one's perfect. That, those are true. Those are true. No one is perfect, and everybody is a sinner. But it doesn't give you justification for you to continue in your sin. It is a truth. It is not a justification. And so before the presence of Jesus Christ, you will be exposed before him. You will not be able to camouflage and hide and put a guy set before him. He will see straight through you. And so here's the warning for us, Crosspoint. Here's the warning for us. You would rather be exposed in your sin today than you will want to on judgment day. Deal with our sin now. You don't want to have to deal with your sin in the presence of the divine warrior Jesus Christ. Deal with our sin now. You can't hide it. So if Jesus' appearance doesn't give, give it away what his intent is in the second coming, John's going to be extra clear with us in the rest of the verses about what his intent is when he comes and describing what his activity is. Look at this. Consider this. The act- Whew, that was kind of scary. <laughs> oh, man. You never want to be talking about Revelation and lights start flickering. Like any other Bible passage, it's okay. Revelation, scary. Oh, okay. BPMs up? Okay. Okay, second point is this, the activity of the warrior king. The warrior king has come to bring righteous judgment to the earth. You know, we talk about people making a grand entrance into places. Some of you may, may be like when you enter into a get-together or into a party, you know, I, all eyes go on you. You just have that kind of bright personality where people are drawn to you and, and that kind. Or you might be on the opposite end of the spectrum. That when you go to a get-together or a party, you come in like a spy. You, you, don't want to be, you, want, you don't want any eyes to be on you. You want to be unnoticed. You want to talk to a couple people, and then you want, to, you want to jet out without anybody ever knowing that you were even there. Hey, were they there at that party? They were, but nobody ever knew that. You might be on one end of the spectrum. You might be the, the, the life of the party, or you might be the kind of spy of the party where nobody knows that you're there. And so that says a lot about a person's personality, about you know, how they, uh, their entrance into a place, their entrance into a get-together or a party. Well, let me ask this. What do you say about a person whom the heavens open up for, he's wearing many crowns, his eyes are afire, he's robed, is drenched in blood, he's got swords coming out of his mouth, and he's riding on a white horse. What about that entrance? That's that's a pretty grand entrance, right? I would say. His entrance, Jesus' entrance on his second coming indicates the purpose for which he came. And it's not to play hopscotch. It's not to play hopscotch. He comes and he, what it says, he comes to, in righteousness, judge and make war. Jesus is riding on a white horse, glorious attire, with a huge army behind him. And guess what? This army hasn't come to back him up, right? 
You don't see this army fighting. If you go and read 17 through 21, the army doesn't get involved here. Jesus doesn't need an army. They, they have come as non-combatants. They have come as spectators, not backups for him. Hey, uh, Jesus, we got your back if it gets a little crazy in there. You know, we'll take, if some get away, we got it. No, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, he brings an army with him to, for intimidation purposes, but he doesn't need them. He doesn't need them. Is that they come as spectators on horses and white linen and what many say that this is the army of the resurrected saints coming with him. And so we get a picture of this in the Gospels and now here in his first coming, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on what? A donkey. And now what does he ride on? A white horse. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, as Zechariah 9 says, to show his humility and his meekness and his patience and his peace. Now Jesus rides in on a white horse with swords coming out of his mouth. And he hasn't come to bring peace. He's come to bring a sword on the nations, on the world who is in rebellion against him. And he does it in righteousness. So he rides in. This is his entrance. Now, what is his weapon of choice? His weapons of war, as Kendall Easley says. What does he choose to war with? Look at this. He is not like a regular conqueror or a regular king coming in to conquer and to bring dominion. Is that Most kings, when they come to conquer people, they come riding on a horse with a sword in hand. That's not how Jesus comes. How does he come? He comes with a sword coming from his mouth. It's not enough. It's not enough to say that Jesus came with a sword in his hand. It's got to be even greater, even better than the kings of this world. So he comes with a sword from his mouth to strike down the nations. It is terrifying. This is also from Isaiah 49. A sword coming from the mouth of the servant of the Lord. But not only that, is that he has a sword coming from his mouth and he's ruling with a rod of what? Iron. A rod of iron. This is straight from Psalm 2. I don't know if you remember a couple months ago, we covered Psalm 2 together about God's anointed one, God's Messiah coming to bring judgment on the world. And it says in Psalm 2.9, the anointed one shall break them, the nations who rage against him, with a rod of iron and will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So Jesus, gentle, lowly, caring for what is fragile, caring for what is vulnerable, That's not how it's going to be in his second coming. If they are like pottery, he is going to crush them with a rod of iron. Jesus came as a shepherd to rule and shepherd his flock with a staff. But in his second coming, he will come as a king. And he will not rule or shepherd with a staff, but with a rod of iron. Sounds painful. And it is. And it will be. And so he will tread the winepress of the fury of The wrath of God the Almighty. Basically meaning the heyday for evil, sin, and rebellion is up. You've had your time, rebels. You've expanded your little kingdom. You've had your days. They are numbered. And now they've come to an end. And now is the time of the reign of the Messiah. And so this is his activity. He has come to judge and make war on the nations who rebel against him. And here's some Here's some application for us, Crosspoint. Is first, I, w- I want to give you a piece of an apologetic. If you don't know what that word is, apologetic, basically how, how to um, defend the faith. It's because a lot of arguments are made against 
uh, God and the Bible because people will pit the Testaments against one another. Well, the God of the Old Testament is so nigh, uh, so mean and so, so uh, bloody and so just barbaric and angry. But the God of the New Testament, Jesus, is so nice and he's so kind and he's so loving. So it seems like there's a contradiction there. Let me just say this. They must have not read Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Right? Because, man, it sounds bloody and it sounds painful and it sounds just. And so this morning, I want us to know that the Bible has a consistent presentation of the triune God. Is that God is merciful and gracious, but he will by no means clear the guilty, as Exodus 34, 6 through 7 says. It's a clear presentation of who God is. He is just, yet he is gentle. And he holds those two things together. So there is no God of the New Testament, God of the Old Testament. It is one God. Second thing is this. Is that we read Revelation 19, 11 through 16, and you might say, this is super bloody. This is super barbaric. This is super extreme. This sounds super callous, right? This is savage. But I think that would be a wrong way to read Revelation 19, 11 through 16. I, I would like us to consider thinking about these verses as Christ's way in preparing the world for the new heavens and new earth. This is, this is Christ's way through his justice and through his judgment. That Consider this, that Christ is clearing the path and preparing the land for his people to dwell in it. Because in order for us to get to the beauty of the new heavens and new earth that's described for us in Revelation 21, you've got to go through Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Christ has to clean up the mess that we've made through sin, transgression, and iniquity. And so 19, 11 through 16 is the pathway in which to get us to Revelation 21. So yes, Revelation 21 is beautiful. God brings a new heavens and new earth, and God dwells with his people there. And it's perfect, and it's beautiful, and it's awesome. But the way in which to get there is through 19, 11 through 16, where Christ comes and prepares the place for his people to dwell perfectly, in harmony, joyfully, without the stain of corruption and sin there. So if you want Revelation 21, you got to go through Revelation 19. And so it's not barbaric. It's not savage. It's not bloody. It's Christ preparing his place for his people. It's beautifying. And so Jesus has come to bring war on evil and rebellion. But John also doesn't just tell us about his appearance and his activity, but he also tells us about his names here. His names. And the reason he gives us his names is that he wants to give his people assurance and confidence for what is to follow. Consider this, number three. The names of the warrior king. The titles given to this warrior king should give us security and confidence. Anybody know who Babe Ruth is? <laughs> kind of a dumb question, right? You might know who Babe Ruth is. So, um, so I don't know if you know this, but Babe Ruth has a number of nicknames. Not, you know, Babe is just one of them. But anybody guess how many nicknames he has? 23. 23 nicknames. I've only amassed like two so far in my life that I know of. 
<laughs> Listen to Babe Ruth's nicknames. So I'm going to go through these fast, so uh, stick with me. Babe, the Great Bambino, the Colossus of Clout, the Sultan of Swat, the Big Bam, the Behemoth of Bust, Jedge, the Caliph of Clout, the Wazir of Wham, the Maharaja of Mash, the Raja of Rap, the Blunderbuss, the Mammoth of Maul, the Mauling Mastodon, the Wally of Wallop, the Prince of Powders, the King of Crash, the King of Clout, the Colossus of Crash, the King of Swing, the Terrible Titan, and the Kid of Crash. That's his nickname. So Babe Ruth had this list going on of different, you know, different players and different people, different news commentators that they all kind of gave and ascribed to him a different nickname to basically highlight a different feature of his game, particularly all around batting, but generally about his whole career. And so each of these nicknames are kind of pointing at a particular aspect of his, of his uh, game, uh, and, and so to highlight a feature of that. And so that's what nicknames and titles do. They highlight particular features of us, particular aspects of us, uh, that uh, the, wanting to emphasize in a title in or, or in a nickname of a person. And so Babe Ruth had a, a number of great aspects about him and, and his athletic career, which explains why he had so many nicknames, right? Well, why do we get numerous titles and names of Jesus in these verses? Well, I, I think Robert Wall says it well is that the names or the titles that are given to Jesus in these verses are apropos of his mission. Meaning that each name and title given to him highlights a particular feature of who he is and what he has come to do. Each name and title given to him highlights and features something that what his second coming is going to be like. And so let's consider these names that are given to him that will highlight for us who he is and what he has come to do. First one we get is this. The rider on the white horse is called what? Faithful and true. I don't know a lot of earthly kings, rulers, or presidents we could confidently give this title to. Actually, I don't know anybody that we could say they're perfectly faithful and true. That politician, perfectly faithful and true. It's not possible. But this is what we get of our sovereign divine warrior Jesus is that he is perfectly faithful and true in the ruler of the universe that he is faithful to his people and that he is showing his faithfulness to his people and coming back to judge sin and rebellion and evil just as he said he would in his first coming he said he would come and has come to save his people from their sins and now he is doing that in his second coming and that he is faithful to what he has said and he is faithful to what the prophets said about him like we read from Isaiah that he is coming to show that he can be trusted because he is faithful and that he is true, that there is not a question of error about him. That you don't have to question, is this real? Is this fake? Is this right? Is this wrong? Is this partly true, partly false? You don't have to ask those, any of those questions. No, he is the truth. And he has come to judge the world of sin. Not only that, look, look down. Verse 12 is that he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Hold, hold on, confusing, right? A name that no one knows but himself. Okay, how can John say that when we are given numerous names here, faithful and true and a number of other ones? How can there be a name that only he knows that's unknown to us? Well, what is this saying? Well, I think it's communicating a particular feature about Jesus and his coming. 
is that there is still a level of mystery and secrecy that is involved in the Messiah's triumph. And that will only be revealed completely when the battle is finished and the victory is sealed. Is that his secrecy and uh, um, concealing of his name or his character shows and communicates a level of power and authority that the Messiah has over all people. The one who has infinite knowledge of all things, yet does not share it fully, is exercising and displaying his power and authority. Let me just give you an example. Don't, don't you feel this way when somebody has a secret that they don't tell you? Right? You feel like they have some sort of power and authority over you. Just tell me. Tell me, right? When they have a secret that they don't tell you, oh, please just tell me. It feels like they have some form of power or authority over you, right? Or maybe like in a business, right? is that the CEO doesn't go down to the janitorial office and explain all the inner workings of the, uh, of the, of the company and explain all the decisions that are being made you know, with finances, right? Is that there's a level of secrecy that the CEO has that he doesn't have to disclose necessarily to the janitor. And that's showing and communicating authority, right? Well, this is what G- Jesus is about in his final coming, is that there's a name unknown to him, and that's communicating to us that there's a level of secrecy and a level of mystery that is still there, and that this is the way in which Jesus shows his authority and power by not disclosing all the information at his final battle, but when the battle is over and the end has come, that is when he does that. So he is faithful and true. He has a name that's unknown, only, only known to him. And he's also called the Word of God, uh, a, a phrase that we've gotten from John already in John 1, 1 through 14, is that he is the full and perfect disclosure of the character of God, is that we completely know who God is from who Jesus Christ is. He is the exact imprint of his nature, and that he completely shows who God is in his character, in his judgment, in his justice. That's what he's doing. He is the perfect Word of God. And then lastly, to culminate all the other titles. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is above every ruler, every king, every president, every person in authority. Jesus rules even over them. So every person in this world, in world history, who has been bowed down to, now will bow down to Him. In the end. Every person who has received awe and reverence and worship in this world will now give worship and awe and reverence to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. He reigns over all and none can rival him. It says this in Revelation 17, 14. They, that being the kings of the earth, will make war on the Lamb. Huh. Good luck. And the Lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. You probably remember this depiction in Revelation 4, 9 through 11, where the elders come together and they, what do they do? They cast their, they cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus and they give glory and honor to him. On the final day, every person who has been a king, ruler, all of us will cast our crowns at the feet of Jesus Christ. And he will be crowned. Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And so this morning, these titles are telling us that that Jesus has supreme control and superiority and sovereignty over all things. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? Well, I think the titles given to Jesus confirm that He can be trusted. Jesus can be trusted. 
He's faithful and true. He won't let us down like the fallen humans of this world. He will, he will bring about His promises. He is faithful and true. I've heard this, uh, this story that uh, two, two books, that are two Bible books, that are favorites among pastors who are serving in persecuted churches. Can anybody guess on what two books they are? Revelation and Daniel. Interesting, right? The two books that pastors who serve in persecuted churches all around the world, their two favorite books are Daniel and Revelation. Do you know why? Because they explicitly tell how Jesus is going to win in the end. And in the persecuted church, that is the truth that they need to hear. That their suffering and their persecution is not in vain. That everything that they are experiencing is not for, for nothing. And that their evildoers are seen by the eyes of God. And He will not wipe it under the carpet. That's why it's an encouragement to the persecuted church, the book of Daniel and Revelation. Because it tells that their suffering is not in vain. And their evildoers will not go unnoticed by the Messiah's eyes who are like flames of fire. We can be confident in this, that Jesus is faithful and true. We can be confident in this, that the titles given to Jesus confirm that Jesus will win the victory. Jesus will win the victory, and it will be certain victory. His victory is decisive, indisputable, unquestionable. There won't be any second chances. There won't be any runoffs. There won't be any checking the electoral college. Jesus will win decisively the battle in the end. And so the already not yet of the Bible is this. Jesus' victory is already determined. He will win. But we wait until it is finally consummated. That's the already and not yet of the Bible. Jesus is going to win. We know that. It's certain. But we wait until it is finally consummated and He wins. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us about that. And so therefore, if Jesus' victory is certain... Those who are in Christ Jesus, their victory is certain. You can be confident in that, cross point. Those who are in Jesus Christ, if his victory is certain, your victory is certain. 1 John 5, 4-5 says this, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Those who have victory only have victory because Jesus has already accomplished it. And won the battle and received the victory. Lastly, is this is that Jesus' titles confirm that he does have universal sovereignty, that he rules over all people. And let me just ask you this question What position do you want to place yourself in in comparison to this divine warrior king? Do you want to be in his opposition? Do you want to be in his way and try to hinder his, his plans and purposes? Because if so, if you want to set yourself up as a rebel, then take 19, 11 through 16 very seriously, because this will be your destiny. If you oppose Jesus Christ, if you rebel against him, then you will pay for it with your own life and your own eternity. That is who Jesus is. But we can have confidence if we are in Christ Jesus that the spoils of the war that Jesus will bring about in his second coming, we will be able to enjoy if we are in Christ Jesus. We'll be able to enjoy a new world cleansed of sin 
and evil in the presence of a gentle warrior king. And so Advent, let's, let's get back to Christmas real quick. Because you might be like, I don't know how this pertains to Christmas at all, Wes. And you've depressed me all week. Advent is about the coming of Christ. Advent, Christmas, is about the coming of Christ. We celebrate His coming as a baby born in a manger. To save us from our sins. But it's not just about celebrating. It's about waiting and preparing ourselves. Is that we celebrate Jesus more in a manger, and that should stir in us a waiting and a longing for Jesus to return. But it also should stir in us an evaluation of ourselves to prepare ourselves for His coming and His return. The arrival, the first coming of Jesus Christ, should stir in us a preparation and evaluation for His second coming. It should stimulate that in us. But how do we do that? Well, today it must begin with repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Because on the last day, on the last day, you want to meet Jesus as a compassionate and gentle Savior. You don't want to meet Him as a divine warrior king. You don't want to meet Him in His justice and in His wrath as a holy, righteous slaughterer of evil and rebellion. So this morning, you begin by preparing yourself like this. Submit to this Christ. Through faith and repentance. Turn from your opposition and your rebellion and come to Jesus. Jesus has dealt with our sin on this cross. That's why He came. He came to deal with sin. And He will come back to judge and cleanse this world of sin. So this morning, you can have assurance this morning. You can have victory in Christ for what He has accomplished on your behalf by His perfect life, His death, and His resurrection, and His return. That you can have that hope. Submit. And believe in Jesus now. And if you have repented and placed your faith in Christ, is that you can live in joy and hope and celebrate in this Christmas season. You you can have joy and hope and confidence in Christmas right now. You can joyfully long for that day when Christ will return and cleanse the world of sin. This This is the picture that Isaac Watts was trying to get out in his song, Joy to the World. Is that Jesus is coming back to reverse the curse of sin. Joy to the world. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. Everything that the fall created, Jesus is coming to turn the tables over and reverse the curse. He comes to make His blessings flow as far as the what? Curse is that the curse of sin has plagued this entire world, but Jesus' coming as a baby born in a manger and as a sovereign, divine warrior, He's come to make His blessings flow and cleanse the world of sin so that we, His people who have trusted in Him and placed our faith in Him, can joyfully dwell with Him in that new heavens and new earth. Advent, Christmas is about Jesus' first coming, which should direct us and point us to His second coming when He comes as a just a divine warrior to cleanse the world of sin and corruption and to prepare a place for His people. Let's pray. God, we love You. We thank You for this. Pray that we get to open up Your Word and reflect on the justice of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray this morning for all of us in here, myself included, Wes McKay, God, that Jesus 
has eyes of flaming fire. He sees through all that we do to try and camouflage our sin. He sees through us the ways that we try to conceal ourselves from Him. And it is impossible. So I pray, God, this morning, begin. Begin our rejoicing this week with repentance from sin. Let rejoicing begin by your people repenting. And that on Christmas morning and every day, we can live in hope and confidence that Jesus has secured the victory by his own life, death, and resurrection. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I invite the band back up to lead us out and sing together, I want to invite you, if you would like to speak more about this Jesus Christ, I would love to, I would love to talk with you about that. Uh, I would love to spend some more time with you talking about the justice of Jesus. And so I'll, I'll be here after the service. I'll, I'll be wearing this. Um, and I would love to speak with you about these things. But this week, I hope that we can continue reflecting on this truth of the justice of Jesus and that it would stir in your hearts a love for Him and what He is coming to do and that we can celebrate in this Christmas season because of who He is.